We got a little uh, Fortune Kit Bottleman crossover here. We got Arlen in the house. What's That's up? right. Um, and this is something we wanted to talk about for the last few months, but haven't gotten around to. Of just, uh, I think it was kind of a hot topic on Twitter and everything for a while of just the unsustainable nature of touring coming out of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah, it's basically you know we've talked a lot about on on this show and on Bottleman um, uh, for the Bottleman listeners who have listened to our Rock Talk series. We've talked a lot about um, the economics of touring. Uh, you know, kind of pre-pandemic, like during the pandemic, we were kind of looking back at the economics of touring. And by this point, everybody knows that the biggest slice of the money pie for most musicians is going to be playing live in front of people who exchange money for a ticket to go see that thing, you know? And that uh, is now at risk. <laughs> yeah. And I guess that's Which what we want to get into is all the various reasons why it's at risk, I think. of like, Yes. I mean, Dan, you're the best person to talk about this of like, before the pandemic, it was already becoming more questionable maybe, but it's just yeah. obviously much worse now. You just can't play well, in front of college students anymore. They get offended by that's every right. single song. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. When Jerry Time. Seinfeld comes out to do, here to do his edgy material, these woke kids just can't take it. Kids just don't want to buy tickets anymore because they get so offended. <laughs> you used to be able to book an entire college tour down the Eastern Seaboard where you were opening for Girl Talk and making $20,000 a night, you know, playing like Frosh. And you just can't do that anymore. Yeah. They're Musicians mad. are the new comedians, you know. Yeah. But not exactly. funny. But not funny. Um, no jokes, but yeah, yeah. Like Arlen and I, uh, you know, you and I have, we're talking about this years before the pandemic. I mean, I think the first, I remember one of the first times we ever talked about this was we were driving, uh, we were driving to rehearsals from Nanaimo. I think we were working, excuse me, working, working on, uh, songs for cry, cry, cry. And we were just talking about how the economic infrastructure that, is comprised by festivals. At that point, it was big corporate venues owned by Live Nation, AEG, whatever, and then independent venues taking up a smaller chunk of that. How that that infrastructure seemed, um, let's just say, like economically whack. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just it, I think really just the margins of of being a touring musician and and you know between having something successful enough to like pay our rent to being completely buried has just gotten smaller and smaller. And I think with a lot of venues, uh, it's just, yeah, the, it's just been harder and harder. Uh, I mean, the most nefarious, uh, kind of aspect was the merch, uh, well, not split the, uh, what would you call it? The, um, Oh, it's the, tie. Uh, the house, the house, uh, I, the house, the tie. <laughs> house yeah. cut, house cut, yeah, um, yeah. taking like, you want to explain, you want to explain the house cut to our listeners? So the house would, cut is, uh, usually part of the contract of whatever venue you're playing. And it's pretty much from what I can tell, non-negotiable and it's, you know, can depend between say 10% to up to 30% of your gross, of your merch, uh, depending, sometimes they don't take it from c CDs or they called hard goods or T-shirts, what they call soft goods. Of course, nobody sells CDs anymore, so that's kind of, you know, 
redundant. Uh, but it, anyways, it's it's a huge chunk of money. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also funny. It's like either huge. It's a huge chunk of money for the band, but for the venue, I think it's really like a kind of a, a, a small amount. It's very weird that they, you know still request this but it's yeah a, it's especially especially considering you know you as a band are paying a fee to rent the room yeah. uh you're bringing people in there you're providing labor you're providing shifts for people who work there you know and most importantly what you're providing is liquor sales which you get zero percent of yeah but yeah, it's, but it's, they it's, get it's, but they get a percent of the shit that is maybe floating your tour because i mean you and i have both played shows arlen were like the guarantee, like what we are we are being paid to play, uh, is kind of low. There's some lost leader shows, but you can always hopefully make up that money um, selling T-shirts or records, right? Yeah, yeah. And this just makes it more and more difficult. I have tried to defy the merch ban several times uh, by basically refusing to sell merchandise at a venue that is taking an agree what I consider an egregious cut. Um, and then selling it out of the back of the van in front or behind the venue. One of those times resulted in the venue manager calling the police on me. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, ghost, I mean, that goes to merch shop, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It is a good, I think, uh, you've, you've kind of like passively framed it in a way that's interesting to me of like, uh, you know, I guess as time goes on, the venue takes more and more of what used to be the artist's share. And it's just funny to imagine the opposite of a band being like, no, we need 20% of liquor sales. If we're exactly. Play, you know, say, you <laughs> should be able to bring a big thing of liquor and give out shots at your merch table yeah. without a license. 100%. 100%, dude. Yes. We Let's actually go. That reminds me, one of the first E1 shows ever, um, when we did Detroit in like 2018, we had planned on, uh, you know, Andrew's brother Shane works in like the beer industry um, and like brews and he knows people who brew and everything. And we were going to bring in a keg of like a thing he was making to sell at our show for our Called, show like, as work, like an E1 work beer. juice or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like some kind of, we were coming up with the name of it and everything. And then at the very last minute, the brewery was just like, uh, no, nah, you can't do it. And we're like, all right, well, I guess we won't then, but... Yeah, yeah. apparently yeah. there are laws. There's some sort of bureau of alcohol and couple other things fools got to get in the uh the, the the disruption mindset of the tech industry and just make like crypto beer you know yeah. <laughs> it's like I mean, this really, beer is on the blockchain exactly. so we don't need any regulations you know it's perfect yeah 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 i mean but that's that's kind of the thing it's just like it is unimaginable for a band to ask a venue for a percentage of liquor sales yeah exactly liquor Liquor sales, which are being made purely because your band is on stage and people are coming to see them, you know, like, yeah. But well, it, but it's totally normal for the venue to say, "Hey, this thing that you uh, make money on to sort of keep you from going into the red on this tour, uh, we need a big old cut of that." Yeah. Well, and I think and it came out of the, that big the heyday of the uh, you know the indie rock boom of uh, the early two thousands, where you know. Everyone was flush before the great financial crisis, and you know bands were making you know making a lot of money and and uh, were making money off you know t-shirts and the whole you know landscape shifted where uh, the the sale of you know hard uh, CDs and and records and whatnot had declined, and so yeah there was this the all the the you know, news articles were how touring is the way you make money, and and now it's merch, and uh, and I think just the venues 
saw that as a way to just increase their bottom line. And yeah. Who snitched? Just thought it was a ca- as a cash cow, you know. <laughs> Who is snitching but about now, making money off merch? They ruined it. For yeah, yeah, don't don't tell them. Yeah, I don't know. Every stereo gum article that was like, "This is the new economy for touring bands," just like limited run T-shirts. Some venue manager is like, "I want a slice of that. I need it." Well, it probably started too with you know, say Live Nation doing it, and then it just filtered to the the rest of the industry. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's like the industry absolutely standard. Kind yeah, of that makes thing. a lot of sense. Yeah, was, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, fuck, I can't talk about it. All right, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, also now you're privy to like too much of that side of the world now. I am a little. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle of a uh, like a very closed network tour right now, and and it's interesting to see how all that stuff shakes out at the higher level. Um, and it's also interesting to see how that like like Arlen, you were saying the margins being smaller and smaller uh, for the middle. At the higher level, that's not really happening right now. In fact, like people are making more money than they ever have. But it just so, uh, that's that's kind of the way that the broader economy works too. Of exactly, the very yeah, small percentage of people on the top are doing better and better, while everyone else is getting fucked. You know, mm-hmm. it's getting super squeezed. So, so I guess you know, like one of the things that made us want to talk about this now is that there's been a wave of. Um, I would say like high profile for mid-level acts cancellations of mainly European tours. Uh, I'm talking about Animal Collective, uh, famously uh, recently canceled an entire European tour. Um, our our pal Zola Jesus had yeah. to cancel a tour. Uh, Santa Gold. Santa Gold. And for uh, Animal Collective, it's like they were headlining festivals in Europe and shit. Like these aren't like small shows they were playing. Like. Yeah. They yeah, were going to the make that, some serious money and it still just didn't add up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And some of that is dependent on the, the band's own personal tolerance for pain because yeah. <laughs> I know that, uh, I won't mention them by name, but a friend's band who uh, are, I would say, like very successful in the in this sort of mid to high level indie rock tier. Like they don't play stadiums, but they sell out two to 3,000 cap rooms pretty much everywhere they go they've been on television uh they sell a lot of records they do licensing they are in the middle of a european tour where they are making zero dollars but their manager is making 20 uh 15 of gross so that's another interesting facet here which is that you can be a touring band and you can be touring in this post-covid world where uh Gas and commodities are up, 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 and guarantees are either medium or down. And the, the the excuse for them being down is going to be the commodities are up. And your fucking manager is still taking 15% of gross, which doesn't factor in any of your costs, which would be those commodities, which are up. So that's kind of how bands so at, at this point that is one way a band cannot make any money on tour my feeling is like do bands just need to now adjust and be like you can't cut any manager into like gross ever because it's not worth it or like what's your feeling then of like do you just not have a manager more often or do you cut them into less of a smaller amount of stuff or like what's the solution for that you know um i mean 
Here's my, th- I mean, I'm sure Arlen has thoughts on this, but just off the top of my head, uh, as the system breaks down, right? Like as the, the infrastructure collapses, as it becomes less and less tenable, your manager's ability to access the system becomes less and less relevant at a certain level, right? Like, Yeah, that makes sense. Like if you have a manager who is plugged into Live Nation, but you're a band that's not, you're a band that's playing a thousand cap rooms, right? And you're probably not going to progress beyond that. Your manager being plugged into Live Nation is utterly irrelevant. It's not going to help your career at all. It's not going to help you make more money, especially if you're already selling out those rooms. That's, yeah. Whereas maybe... Five years ago, having a Live Nation manager would be great because they could get you on festivals or they could get you doing support tours or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I guess at the end of the day, for whatever level an artist is at, you have to understand your own situation and how it's changed, which sounds really stupid and obvious, but it's true of like, I mean, I think this goes for like podcasts and shit too, of just like understanding what's worth it and what's not and understanding that that might be different than it was two, three years ago, even. And like, yeah, you know, yeah. like even like from doing the show that like my band did with Chapo, uh, like a month ago, uh, it's, it's like podcasts are reaching that level where it's becoming the same thing as bands where it was like what you're talking about of, they wanted to take like 10% cut of merch and everything. And Chapo, they're just flying out to each show and not doing like a sort of conventional tour where they just brought no merch. We brought like t-shirts in case they were going to do merch. And because they didn't do anything, we're just like, okay, we're not going to sell these either. Um, That's so funny. But it's interesting. I think it's actually kind of smart of they're like, what's the fucking point of bringing these t-shirts out with us to do? They're doing like one show a weekend for like a month or a month and a half or whatever. And yeah. uh, it's, it's kind of refreshing in a way. I don't know if refreshing is the right word though, because maybe... Podcasts are just going to learn the same lessons in a bad way. But I think maybe it's kind of refreshing to just be like, you know what? Fuck it. We're just not even going to bother with this shit. Like, um, there's at least like, not, not out of like intention, not an intentional thing, but like a sort of, uh, coming from a place of ignorance, just reinventing it on the, on the grounds of like, you know what? Why bother with it? You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think too, Um, that the old model with, with the manager, having a manager and the gross and all that was that, you know, there was this ceiling that you could achieve that doesn't really exist anymore. Like you're, you know, the idea of like a rock band uh, getting to the U2 level or Led Zeppelin or whatever, that just isn't going to happen. So it's all about kind of a more, you know, as a friend put it, small ball kind of game. So really, yeah, there has to be an exploration on a kind of new model where you have kind of a you know almost an administrative person that helps a band with the day-to-day stuff and and allows the band the freedom just to to focus on the kind of creative aspects but isn't essentially draining you know or or taking all the cream from the band's labor yeah yeah Yeah. and i think i mean at least from my perspective as someone who never had access to the mentality that there was a high level to reach to you know what i mean like i think it's good for everyone to just find a sustainable level where they can make a living but not get rich and figure out how you can stay at this sustainable level where like i can at least get by you know like yeah um if you come with that mentality then you're never gonna try to reach for the stars of like oh i'm gonna get this hot shot guy who wants to take a shitload of money but like he's gonna make us big it's like 
that's just I just expect that never to happen for something like E1 or whatever. No, it's like there is no big anymore. Yeah, for, exactly. Like it's not gonna fucking happen. It's like no one is signing. Yeah, I, I guess like back in the day, I'm thinking about people like Neil Young, who got what like multi album deals with these labels, or Lou Reed is a good example, um, or even Kate Bush, who were just allowed to fail, and that was just part of it, you know. They were betting like, that she would a have a song in Stranger Things later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and they bet right, you know. They finally broke uh, even on Hounds of Love. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, like that you would, as a manager, you would have a holistic sort of, I mean, I'm not saying managers back in the 70s and 60s were good by any means. I'm just saying maybe the 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 goal was more holistic and long-term. And now it is extremely like kind of almost like pump and dump like yeah which also I, uh mirrors the broader economy you know exactly yeah i think a lot of music management have absorbed the absolute wrong lessons from like tech uh from maybe from the from the tech industry like 10 years ago even you know where they're just like all right, like you, you try and book the biggest room possible. You try and get the most money out of this one tour. You squeeze it super hard. And if it doesn't work, then, oh, well, you know, you discard that band and you sign a new band and maybe next time. Yeah. Basically, their interests are not aligned with the band's interests of yes. a long-term, sustainable, reasonable type of career. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And like Arlen was saying, you know, you Arlen, you want to talk about small ball a little bit because this is something we've we've talked about a lot in the context of like Wolf Parade and other stuff that we've done. Yeah, I mean, it's just the the idea that you're kind of shaping your career where you're not just going all out for glory. That uh, you know, you're you're you know, I think about like playing venues where you know it suits the audience and the crowd and you're kind of leaving as they say tickets on the table and yeah not trying to play the biggest venue you can play um and just trying to think of things yeah as you said like more holistically like where i mean there's there's been models of that i think forever like um uh like the residence i think is a, a interesting model you know where they started doing stuff with like a, a fan club and newsletter and selling their records through that and I think we're just approaching that kind of reality more and more because, you know, labels don't matter as much. Uh, and I think trying to get heard and, and get noticed is, I think, harder than ever because there's, yeah. you know, so much stuff happening. And uh, you really need to have a manager who's like tuned into who your audience is and how to kind of reach your audience. And kind of make the most of it, and be kind of centered towards the the fans, as opposed to kind of centering towards the industry. Yeah, yeah. And Dan, you had found this article. It's not even really worth talking too much about this, like this shitty Substack article that you had linked us to. Yes, um, that's like it's like so glib and stupid um, that it's, it's almost coming, like it's coming from the world of electronic music. So, I mean, I, I think you have to also 
sort of take that into account that culture is yeah, slightly but, different uh, well, than the uh, rock world but i think world. the the thing wrong with that article is the same thing wrong with any or analyzing any genre this way is that they're talking about how like on spotify it's just a deluge every week of like there's a hundred thousand songs going up so what's the point of making an album because like why does it matter and whatever but it's like treating every listener as just this vast ocean of listeners like as if there's no distinction between each individual i think and yeah. um it's the wrong way to look at music entirely of, oh, what's the point when there's so much music coming out? It's like, no, it's good that that many people can release their music. It sucks that middlemen like Spotify are taking more than ever. But yeah. if you're trying to put stuff out there, you got to find your niche and you have to understand that the millions of people listening are not your audience. Your audience is a certain amount of like thousands of people listening who are going to listen to your album 20 times rather than someone who's going to listen to it one time and like never think of it again. Like, well, that's uh, the thing. It's like you got to untune your mind from the idea of uh, that, like, like we said at the beginning of the episode. You know, the idea, like, uh, the idea that you're going to be your thing is going to become the U two of its genre. Yeah, is like just because, just purely because the internet exists and everything is so easy to get a hold of, and it's so fragmented, it just doesn't happen that way anymore. I would also argue even more than that, like. Not only is that right, but if you go back to U2 and imagine when U2 was putting out those first couple albums, they themselves didn't think they were going to be like a lifelong arena rock band. There was just a sure. sequence of events that took them there. But if you think you're someone who's going to do that from the beginning, you're kind of just an idiot generally. Like You always need to be looking for like the niche that actually cares. You can never be looking to please everyone or else you're going to make garbage all the time, you know, <laughs> which is a good, which raises a good question is like, does any young artist that applied this sort of like open-ended grind set mentality, has it ever paid off for anyone? You know, like, I only, don't know. Only I, in fake ways. Like someone like Drake, like pretends like he started from the bottom, but he was like a child actor. So it's like, I guess that worked out for him, but he never had to like have the actual grind set mentality, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think it really works out that way almost ever. And I guess like this idea of fan service, it it kind of goes to the podcasting world too. Like, I just recently saw uh, Trunon do their like Year of the Smile live show. Yeah, yeah. Which I highly encourage anyone to go see. Like, it's it's fucking rad. It's uh, you know, I think. Like you guys with E1 and and them are both doing wildly different things with like live podcast shows that are like unexpected and like super fun and kind of bring the medium out. But being at that show and around all the, the like little freaks that like paid money to go see yeah. a podcast <laughs> live, of which I am one, uh, I was like, oh, this is a masterful, masterful exercise in fan service they're really giving everybody what they want and it reminded me of old like weird punk shows just like everyone is there for this niche thing there's like special merch everyone's stoked uh and i, I feel like that's kind of the way we, forward when we first became friends with keith buckley he told us that stuff like e1 is the new punk and Branson was immediately like, oh, you think I'm like punk? Like, you know, Branson's the last guy on earth who gives a shit about punk music or anything. Yeah, but yeah. But he's like, no, 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 for real though. Like this, the attitude and the way that it's um, sort of a scene that was built out of sort of nothing. Uh, yeah. And it was like, at the time, even I also thought it was kind of stupid, but he's basically right of like, 
he was right of just like, you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to ever create something new. And we were lucky to be part of a sort of wave of something that hadn't existed five years before, you know? Now that we all yeah. have the same political opinions as the Ramones, I've kind of come around <laughs> to being punk. I guess we are kind of punk. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just super into Reagan, like what was it Johnny? Yeah, yeah. George W. Bush, he's saving our he's saving our country from terrorism. Yeah, great artist. Yeah, really one of the one of the greats. Great job. Yeah, yeah. I think I think uh, really it's uh, what is going to thrive and what I see thriving right now is like the kind of DIY level uh, of, of kind of music and shows because it, it really is about community and having a community and and I think that's a lot of what kind of having a good fan base is is having you know a community of kind of like-minded people who are into your art and I think I with the podcast thing too it, it's it, it's as much a community of listeners as it as it is like you know your traditional fans going to see you know Motley Crue play um and I think that's where it's coming down to is that unless you're kind of helping develop a community and being part of a community with your art, it's going to be really hard to make, you know, anything that kind of sustains. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. So yeah. I think, you know, like I see even my, you know, I, li I live in a pretty small town and, you know, there's a really thriving, you know, local DIY scene uh, where people are making venues and, and uh, there's labels and, you know, it's, it's never, you know, yeah, it's never going to be, you know, breaking into some sort of mainstream or whatever you could even consider the mainstream now, but it's, it's vital. And I think people who are making art in the scene, people are going to remember it, you know, for the rest of their lives because it's, it's something that you're involved in and it's tangible. And I think that's the thing with, you know, everything being really focused with on the internet is that internet is, is a very intangible kind of, uh, medium uh and so that's the thing with spotify is, is is very weird is that you have these bands who are on playlists and they stream really well they have millions of streams but then they go to play a show and it's like they can't fill a cafe yeah, yeah there's no one there and there's that's, no I guess, one there because like, there's no the there's no community there's nothing backing them what has helped uh like helped podcasts grow in the last five seven years is the fact that things like Twitter and Patreon and Discord do allow you to build a community, whereas Spotify doesn't. You know yes. what I mean? Like yeah, Spotify, totally. yeah, you could you could have a song that gets two million plays and no one cares, and you're gonna make like a small amount of money that'll be nice for like a little while, but like it doesn't matter enough. But uh, on things where people can actually communicate and like have chat rooms and like threads and stuff, it really does go much farther to creating a community. Like I think every Spotify track should have comments. I was just gonna say, Alex, I just had a nightmare thought, which is uh Elon destroys Twitter in the next three weeks. And Spotify moves in to fill the gap for musicians <laughs> and is like, guess what, guys? We're enabling comments. <laughs> that would be sick. I would get the first comment on every song. I would go Hell to like yes. Bohemian Rhapsody. This fucking sucks, dick. Yeah. <laughs> Zero out of five. This is the worst Boo. shit of all time. This guy had no talent. There would be like a, a thousand notifications at Spotify. I am 12 years old and I like this song. Fuck you. <laughs> just on a day of the life just like overrated yeah all yeah. Beatles are overrated worst mu worst song by the best children's music band of all time but the thing the that actually worked the end, like it pissed this, off my um, dog zero out of five yeah, stars yeah. 
being yeah. on like I mean, since I was the right age to just always be on like the torrent, like the invite only torrent sites for music. I miss what um, CD. Yeah. Exactly. I was gonna say, like I guarantee you that Oink is probably where I first heard Wolf Parade. Because on like for Oink sure. and then what CD and everything, it's like whatever the hot album that week was, I would download it. And then it's a, it's an invite only community, so everyone who's like commenting on it actually is being thoughtful. Um, yes. And you would learn so much about new music from there. Of just like, oh, I gotta hear this. Everyone's saying it's great, you know. Like, yeah, I think um, I heard about yeah. Wolf Parade from 4chan. Now that I think oh, about sweet. it, sweet, actually, that's amazing. <laughs> well, I guess Wolf Parade has 4chan to thank for uh, our success. Oh god, <laughs> I was like 14. The 4chan music <laughs> board that was like uh, that was what introduced everybody to Neutral Milk Hotel as well. Wow. They were the ones that turned that album cover into a meme and that was a huge influence on me. A lot of that uh, a lot of those meme albums from 15 years ago. Yeah, between yeah, I mean, you and me Alex, like we're like 5 years apart where even from those 5 years it's like slightly different, you know? Like I was on like Oink and What CD and like IRC even, but I didn't really use uh 4chan or whatever that much. Like uh I don't I guess it's a good lesson of like you want to have something that's durable enough that there's enough like little sub communities talking about it and shit. But the, all, yeah. I guess the the, con, the connective tissue is that all those communities are kind of limited. Whereas, like, if Spotify had a comment section, it'd be a disaster, right? Because it's such oh, like it a monolith. A like, it'd be so fucking miserable. nightmare. Yes, just absolute shit show. Like, I'm just thinking of even my own artist page. Like, just the trash fire. Direct messages to the band. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Boo. I mean, just and they would be overrun by bots immediately. It would just be like GM, sweetie. How are you? Yeah, I like to avoid Spotify. I think that's that's done a very weird, like just the the nature of the kind of algorithm taking over uh, curation is. Uh, I think that's it's going to have some big impacts, you know, uh, that yeah. nobody really understands. And I think too, once you know, if AI, you know, starts becoming more of a thing, where it's just becomes like you could see a future where there's just weird AI built records. Or recordings of like, you know, basically fake bands, and uh, yeah, it's just gonna be a very weird future, and just kind of foisted on everybody through the you know the almighty I mean, algorithmic playlist. We're close yeah. enough to that already, but Arlen, it kind of goes back to what you were saying though that there's still like a thriving local scene where you're at, and the people who have always liked music the most are the people who are always seeking out what they feel is like you know something they can be a part of. And you can't be yep. a part of like an AI generated thing, right? So like there's always, yep. even if the mainstream is ruled by like a bunch of garbage, there's always going to be the most interested people looking for the most interesting thing. And I don't think you can ever keep down that type of like local music economy. But I guess, you know, the, obviously the ideal is that those people make enough money to keep doing it, right? Like that's what's Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's the thing is that the kind of middle class of music is is that's what's that thread is it's yeah. you know you yeah. can have that you can have DIY and, and which is amazing and and you know the upper tier is thriving but yeah it's that you know journeyman kind of musician band being able to to kind of make a living on the road is that's yeah it's totally what it what's a threat and um, yeah. I know Dan and I have had lots of conversations about how just the ecosystem of live music um and how you know especially in canada um so much of the venues come straight out of like an ecosystem that was built in like the turn of the like 1800s and 1900s yes. uh, where like every venue and every bar is part of a, a hotel 
And, you know, the infrastructure has not really changed in like a hundred years. Yeah, we're going so, back to like gold rush, uh, yeah. building the railroad era. Like. And so, and so, so much of, of what, you know, what was the model was, you know, a band coming in to play, you know, the dances for a week at some, you know, shitty, you know, bar built into a hotel, you know, out in like Prince George. And really like that's, you know, that's all gone. So, you know, it's really got to rethink of, of like what people want out of culture. And if people want kind of live music and have, you know, kind of like a, uh, bands playing that are, you know, of this kind of middle class of, of musician that, yeah, it's going to have to be kind of state supported. Um, yep. and I know with America, that's, you know, yeah. a very almost impossible. Off, that's a very far off, yes, you know, because the, the alternative is uh, what kind of what we have right now, which is that you are either big enough to play the uh, big sports arena that has a telecom company, you know, that owns it, you know, or you're doing DIY shows in a basement and you've got one or two other jobs to support yourself and you're probably not going on tour. Has anyone ever yeah. made the argument that the CanCon stuff, the government subsidized art, is doing the same thing to America that America did to Mexico after NAFTA by uh, subsidizing our own grain, <laughs> driving the price of theirs down. Yeah, that's good. It's impossible to make that's... money as an American musician because you've just got these Canadian people up north. <laughs> yeah, subsidizing it. Yeah. yeah, you got the Arkells coming in and uh, blowing out a 200 capacity room in New York. You know? <laughs> I just can't like, compete. Yeah, we need to get... We need to involve musicians in NAFTA. There needs to be a tariff on Canadian musicians. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, oh, well, oh, no, no, wait. There is. There is. is. There? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that tariff is, it doesn't matter how much money you make or even if, if you make money. If you are going to come down and you're going to play some shows in America, you are going to apply for a work visa, usually an O-1, um, sometimes a P-1 or a P-2. And you are going to pay anywhere between $1,500 and $3,500 for the privilege of going down and playing a show and then having one-third of your income immediately removed by the IRS, which then you have to petition the American government to get back. And they say, uh, you know what? Things are kind of crazy down here right now. We'll get around to it. So, yeah. Damn. That gets back to like everyone canceling European tours of like... Uh, just touring abroad is such a fucking pain in the ass when the well, margins are already thin, you know? We gotta have well, global here's the thing that, There shouldn't be all the these thing, things though. in the way all the time. Like, uh, we have a globally connected world. We've had it for like 400 years. We've still got all these bullshit things where you can't come in, you can't go from Ontario to New York without all these issues. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, totally. Well, Europe, Europe has it dialed. So, like, if you go play in Scandinavia, you're gonna get some official-looking documents from the Swedish government saying... Hey, you know, we're going to take 7.5% of uh, the gross of this show. That's the tax. We've sorted it all out. If you play in Spain, it's a little more complicated. You you kind of like put up 50% of the tax and then they write you. A, it's, it's some wild bureaucratic shit, but it still shakes out to much less money than uh, having to pay for a visa to go play in the States. It's odd to me that the States hasn't figured that out yet, or maybe it's just by design, it's baked in. But but like you said, Alex, you know, they, they don't want these government subsidized Canadian musicians coming in stealing jobs from just like har hard working bands like <laughs> Incubus of, uh, or three eleven, you know. Yeah. 
It's like 1,500 members of Broken Social Scene coming down and just laying waste. You know, yes, exactly, exactly. Just annihilating the. Uh, the they don't economy. share our values, broken social scene. You know, some of them won't get vaccinated. That's true. You know, yeah, like, they might have some trouble coming in at the border. Either way, well, yeah, yeah, they're not filling out the arrive can. That's what I'm saying. You know? Anyways, yeah. I think I got a, I got a roll. Get uh, oh, oh, sure thing, dude. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you got to stop by for this long, though. Yeah, Arlen, you're, Arlen, you're rolling out to literally. Um, help your local DIY scene, right? <laughs> I'm literally going to help the DIY scene, which I think is actually these like young teenage rappers that are having their record release at the Fucking local age. cafe. So, yeah. Well, I hope that Mr. Esquimalt stops by. Oh, man. Yeah, rolling hard, you know, <laughs> leaving the Vic West, coming to yeah. coming into the armpit of the island and I'm OBC. <laughs> All, All right, right, dude. We'll, yeah, okay. we'll see you around. Yeah, take care, guys. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me on. See ya. Okay, bye. We got to insert a door closing sound effect now. <laughs> Prince George, that's where Cole Campbell lives. That's where my brother lives. Really? Yeah. Has he ever seen a like five two, extremely heavy set man with a um, like the side shaved down on his hair, glasses that are at a forty five degree angle on his face? And he's wearing like swag pants. Um, I'll have to ask <laughs> him. I don't know. <laughs> he works. At, he works at the hydroelectric dam there. So uh, yeah, I bet if you yeah. send him Maybe a picture he's... of Cole Campbell, he would say, "I've seen that guy." Dude, I'm sure he's seen him. 100. percent Prince George, not that big. People must know him. He's like might be the most famous guy there, just because he was on Drake's Instagram story once in like 2016. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I mean, where's his government subsidies? What, by the way, where's Cole Campbell's government subsidies? They well, should what be does sending him around but, touring. He does a Michael Jackson dance. Um, he that's good enough to make it karaoke. <laughs> Send him to New York. He should play Carnegie Hall. He should open for the Arkells in New York. Yeah, two Canadian artists. Did he write a song called Bouncing? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, this is a different Cole Campbell. He might have. I know he, he doesn't have too many songs. He had one original song where it's him uh, going around Prince George, walking around hotels and dancing. It's pretty funny. It's like, <laughs> it's Prince George. It's not a big city. Nope. And he's like talking about all these strippers know my name. They fuck me for my fame. Huh. <laughs> okay. He's great. It he's awesome. It, it would. It wouldn't surprise me that the whatever small amount of uh, sex workers there are in in Prince George would know his name because it is a small. <laughs> that country. is true. Yeah, it's probably like three or four of them, and they know his name probably to warn them. They yeah, don't just, be just like, oh, block fuck. this guy's number. They're probably all in his music video. Cole's going to ask you to do a video shoot. Uh, highly recommend you don't do it. He's not going to pay you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I guess. Um, Back to like the main topic at hand, it's like the only mildly optimistic thing is maybe some combination of stuff like Patreon with very targeted strategic touring or like Dan. Now I feel bad that Arlen had to leave because Dan, you kind of talked about this one time um, when we were just talking of like considering the option of things like residencies for Wolf Parade. Yeah, Which a bunch I mean, of bands be, that have that size have started doing, you know, like yeah, and I'm not talking about like a very static, like boring residency, uh, like LCD sound system doing 
Yeah, New York cool. all the time because they live there. Yeah. Exactly, because they can take public transit there and cut yeah, costs. But you mean you like know? a few like, nights in LA, a few nights in New York, a few yes, nights in Chicago. A few yeah. ni- or even like, you know, a few nights in Vienna, a few nights in uh, in London, a few nights yeah. in Dublin, you know? Stuff like that. But we were looking at the numbers from this run of shows that we did this year where we did, it was a mix of pretty well-paying festivals and then underplays for us, like smaller venues than we would play. I'd say by like two thirds. Um, so you know, we, we E1 opened obviously the Troubadour show, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, like these are pseudo residencies where we're in the same sort of area. But we started looking at the numbers from that, and we were looking at numbers from like our or or just talking about like residencies that we'd done before where we'd stay in the same city and we kind of realized that uh we can make more money we would be more lucrative for us over the year to set up some well thought out residencies where we bundled tickets made special merch maybe did a night where we played say all of at mount zoomer you know and then 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 actually touring (laughs) yeah and that's not because we don't make money on tours just because you have eliminated so many costs just by staying in the same place. And you make it kind of a destination show. Maybe you do two or three of those a year in like some key markets or at least interesting markets. You can even make it a destination thing. And it sounds kind of crazy, but like it, it's, I don't know, it does make sense. The fans should have to come may- to the band. Because the band well, has more they, stuff to carry. Exactly. It's like how he always Alex practices the, at the drummer's house. 100% right. Because you're not going to make him bring yeah. the drums to somebody else. Like, he's got all this shit there. Let's go over there. Yeah. Fan goes to the Wolf Parade show, gets on a plane. They're bringing a carry-on. I get on a plane. I got my guitar. I got two suitcases, you know? I've got my suitcase of toiletries. It's just like face cream and shit like that, <laughs> you know? Like, but, but yeah, like... And we noticed, like, when we did the West Coast run this year, that people were traveling to come and see the shows. Yeah. It was like a destination thing. And it, and it is kind of almost like an alternative to a festival, you know? Like, I know a lot of, like, bigger music fans, they go to a festival for, like, one or two acts. So there's no reason you wouldn't spend a tenth the price that you'd spend at a festival to go see one band that you really liked in a nice location and have that sort of experience tailored to you yeah. as a fan. Which goes back to the whole community thing, too. I think the key to this working is to not have the managerial class realize like we were talking before about the soft merch thing in venues is to not have the the fucking leviathan of this parasitical class realize that this is a money-making opportunity you know yeah because then they will absolutely fucking suck it dry and start you'll start seeing things where like bowery ballroom will be like instead of having a different show every night we'll have Oh, Dinosaur Jr. is doing seven nights. Then Japanese Breakfast is doing four yeah. nights. And then- that's what's going to, like, that's kind of almost an inevitability of, like, if this works for, like, two, three years, then yes. they're going to ruin it, you know? But then it's on to the Exa- next thing, unfortunately, of they will ruin it, and then it'll have to change again. It just fucking sucks, but. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think in a way, like, we've already talked on the show about, like, uh, how difficult it is to unionize uh, musicians. I mean, 
I posted something about like uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, who was it? It was like uh, oh, uh, music supervisors who work for Netflix are unionizing, right? And yeah. I posted something like, "Well, I support this. I do support it. It's just it's too bad that musicians can't unionize, right?" And I yeah. and I had some people in the comments being like, "You already have a musicians union. It's called the AFM. Like this is disinformation." Disinformation. Exactly. And people brought up were like, you know, like, uh, okay, well, the AFM doesn't really work for most modern musicians, right? It's just, it's not built that way. It's built to help out pit orchestra players and like session guys. Yeah. And then, and, and people were arguing back and forth saying, well, it's your job to change the union from the inside. That's all fine and good. It's difficult because everyone is competing against each other at a certain level. But I think maybe the lesson from all of this is that if we can't unionize, maybe it's time to just uh, get rid of the, get rid of the middle management. Yeah. I think I do think more bands need to either fire their management outright and do what Arlen said and hire administrators um, and pay them a fair wage, you know, like you pay a front of house or a sound tech or uh, they need to, they need to just basically uh um sorry, I'm about to cough. Um yeah, yeah, either fire them or basically tell them, look, uh here's the new deal. Uh new album cycle, you take a percentage of net. You don't take a percentage of gross. Yeah. That was something I was almost trying to say earlier, um, when you were talking about management and being like, Yeah, bands need to be able to define for themselves what the terms are. And I think yeah. the problem is that a lot of young artists don't realize it any they have zero clue what's normal even so everyone is willing to accept bad terms because they just want to make it and then by the time they've made it they realize that they accepted very bad terms and now they've already lost all this money you know exactly and like what you need at the beginning is not a manager what you need if if the if how you're going to make money is playing shows what you need is a booking agent you know it's like it's um Broadly speaking, there needs to be some bank of information about this for people of like, everyone has such stupid ideas about what they think they need to do because it is hard to figure out what you should do. And it's only become harder, right? But there does need to be some sort of collective, reliable resource for this kind of information. And from my perspective, it's people like you who just, you can trust because you've been doing this so long. But for the general public, it's so hard to like, for someone who's like 19 right now, who's like, fuck, I want to play music, you know? They don't know who to like turn to or who to talk to, or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine about a band that he had opened for his podcast, and they recently signed to uh, like just an individual for management. I'm kind of like, oh, I know exactly who you're talking about, actually, because I had the same conversation. They're <laughs> just kind of like, why? I was like, why, why exactly? Yeah, dude, I said the why, same thing. <laughs> why do that? Like, there's why are you giving your money away? You know. Yeah. But that's what There's I mean. No- is like people just think like, oh, this will work out for me. like this is smart to do. Like, no, it's not. You don't need this. Like, but you don't know what you need is the, like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing too. Like for public relations or like getting the word out or whatever, you gotta ask yourself, can my manager tweet better than me? And if the answer is no, then you don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm sorry. Like what are predatory managers looking like these days? Oh, I'm thinking man, like cigar. Uh, I'm imagining Alan no. Klein. No, I think I think the predatory manager has evolved into the kind of uh, 
the kind of like like imagine an airport lounge but in the shape of a person you know like just extremely bland bland in a way that seems expensive that would make sense that's that's my that's my experience we got to make them sleazy again yeah we got to make managers sleazy again that's like their natural Uh, warning they got to be flipping tables over um they're gonna be talking about how they're gonna make you a big star yeah, I I also think, you know, from experience, especially with my new job, uh, that a lot of the people in the, the like sort of around management, the upper level management classes, and this is this isn't a judgment, this is just an observation, that music management sometime during the boom of indie rock, when festivals were at their very peak, music management became a job for idle rich people who could afford to not get paid at first, you know, and just go to events, go to events, go to events, go to festivals, fucking pay for their own plane tickets, whatever. You know, you got to be a person like that. But then when you get the job, it's a stepping stone to some vague entrepreneurial job where you're the boss, you know? And that is a bad class of people to have directing the careers of artists. Yeah, because they don't understand at all the perspective of being an artist or the type of living you're trying to make sustainably over time. And then also, it reminds me too of just how these people are so fucking susceptible to things like crypto, where it's like, of course they are. They don't care. Yes, because they're all fucking pilled on crypto. They're all pilled on crypto, you know, because they're entrepreneurs. And in a way, Alex, like the the cigar-chomping... The, the fucking cartoon of the cigar-chomping monster that is going to, like, fuck over everybody in his path to make your band successful and then maybe fuck you over, too, is preferable to these sort of, like, bland animals that just, like, uh, that are just, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to South by Southwest and I got my finger in this, I got my finger in that. Uh, you should do the streaming service, like... Got a big meeting with Tidal or whatever. It's just, like, fuck off. Those guys would like, invest their money in mob casinos. Not crypto. Exactly. Exactly. You'd be doing a residency in uh, pre-revolution Havana. Actually, Dan, what you just said kind of makes me think too of like in the podcasting world, again, I think we're kind of recreating all the things that happen in music anyway. And that's why I'm always so interested in those kind of parallels of, I feel like I know enough people who are looking for that kind of payday too, where they're like, oh, we want to do something that's like on like a network that's going to like... Get us this. It's like these networks can't do fucking do anything for you, dude. Like they honestly, cannot. they cannot do anything for you. Like I know enough people where I've had these conversations of just like, why are you trying to do that? Because it's stupid. It's a waste of your time. They're a, they're not going to pick up your show, and then b, you're going to make less money from that show than you would have on Patreon. And they're actually using your followers on Twitter to make their thing more popular. They don't like. They're not giving you listeners. They want your already like followers, right? Like. Yes, yeah, they want you so to backwards. do the work for Has them. Has anyone yeah, ever exactly. discovered a podcast through a network? No, that's I think people never. have who are like, like, no, I guess not. Yeah, because I was even going to say like the cliche of that to me is something like, you know, Comedy Bang Bang, that's a good show. And then they made yeah. a shitty network with a bunch of crap shows on it. And it's all like the Office Ladies podcast. But people aren't even discovering that because it's just people who like the Office who want to hear them talk about the Office. Like, they're really not discovering yeah, it. Yeah, right? who's like, going to so the site lame. of the, the podcast network? Plus, they make you put in yeah. ads at random times. Exactly. Like, you control nothing. If your show's good, they'll cut it if it's just not doing numbers. Like, you're putting yourself into a worse environment 
to get yeah. not, like they're getting more from you you're, than you're getting from them and it's just so stupid to me to think that that's a good idea right like charles charles what about this though have you thought about this e1 network well now now we're talking if i can rip off everyone else who wants to join it yeah 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 you could have bands you could have wolf brand could sign to the e1 network uh yeah we're gonna need 50 percent of everything you make up front you should open your own yeah. venue yep. exactly yeah Actually, even that, like, I, this is actually, I want to hear, like, it's a shame Arlen's gone because I want to hear his, like, thoughts on this too. But uh, the last E1 show we did a couple months ago was, like, our worst experience ever of just being gouged on so many fucking things of, like, like, we got the, like, the guarantee, but they made more money than us because they just fucking, I mean, it's a venue we played before and the last time they charged us for, like, half as much shit as this time of, like, oh, like, last time maybe it was, like, $20 on, uh, uh, marketing now it's a hundred dollars you know now we're paying an additional person's salary for the whole day etc and like we just got so fucked on it yeah um yeah and luckily that like and this is what i think everything is about though of luckily this other person we know in chicago who's booked shows with us before and whatever i talked to him and he's like next time you do a show come to my new place it's not as established but i'll just give you the vast majority of everything at the door you know yeah uh, i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna give you a fair like you know i'm gonna give you a huge cut you're not gonna. We're not gonna deal with any of this stuff. Just come to my place. I'm like, yeah, that's what we'll do next time. Because we're lucky to know someone who wants to like work with us and like understands what the deal is. I guess like exactly. You know, I you're guess. gonna you're gonna see people drifting away from venues that are using post COVID scarcity to gouge bands and live acts like podcasts. Yeah, at the you end know? of the day, it's like. Like, uh, a more established venue, it's nice to like go there and it's cool that it's like established and whatever. But if they're just fucking you over, people who are going to the show will just go to a different venue. Like they don't care that much, right? Like, yeah. Well, I mean, this is all right. This was happening during the pandemic too. I'm already th I'm thinking about a, uh, a, a live uh, streaming event that happened where there was a venue booked and that venue did zero promotion for the show. You know, and when yeah. asked about promoting the show, the venue said, well, that'll be an extra X amount of dollars, which is fucking insane because we're talking about tweeting. Yeah, that's like Facebook posts. Yeah. Yes. Does that do a lot? Which we've, it does nothing, but like, you know, we've talked about Facebook posts and, you know, targeted Facebook ads as a form of tour promotion as a way that band gets, bands get gouged on the show before. That's definitely happened to me. Uh, but this was literally just like, you're going to have to pay us for our fucking venue to tweet about the fucking show that we're having that we ostensibly want to make money yeah. off of it. And of course their account of. has way less followers than anyone who's actually doing the show. And it doesn't matter exactly. that they do it because people yeah. don't care that they're doing it. Like, yeah. Who follows yeah. a local so venue on Twitter? Psychos. Uh, no, uh, the, who does it is local bands who want to play the venue. That's it. It's not people who are going and, to the shows. It's bands who want to ingratiate themselves to the venue is usually what it is. Yeah. And or tour managers who are like playing there and need to communicate via DM with like yeah. who's ever running the account, you know, and then forget to unfollow it or don't want to be rude. Like, it's just like, it's a similar thing we were talking, we've talked about before with like music media too, where... I, I think we're developing a unified theory of grift yeah. here. It is correct. You know? Like we're it we're right one, about all of this. <laughs> we are one hundred percent correct. It's like when you know your record label tells you that you, you know, you have to do X thing for X, you know, publication, and it's just like no, you don't, because that publication is literally just using your name to juice traffic 
for their like uh, low B account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, and even, expe- um, I, I guess another, maybe we haven't talked about this as much of, I would say this is like a couple months ago when this became a thing among like music writers to, for a very rare, like there's this rare moment where music writers for those kind of like pitchfork type websites became suddenly interested in the material conditions of musicians because enough high profile musicians like Animal Collective, Santa Gold, Zola Jesus, like we were talking about, had to cancel tours. There was this like brief moment where they all suddenly had like a glimpse of what actually matters. And I think maybe it's already kind of dissipated on Twitter, but it's like, if you guys had always been fucking talking about this stuff, then music writing would be more interesting because this is what does matter. Like the material conditions that musicians have to make their living under are the things that inform how often you release music, how you play it, how you present it to the world. And music writers so often don't care about any of that. It was interesting when they started caring briefly, but I think it's already like fading away. It's done. I mean, yeah. It also, the material conditions also inform whether you can actually continue to do it or not. Yeah, which exactly. is something which is something that is also lost in the material managerial class, because if they understood that, then you know they wouldn't be squeezing so hard. Yeah, it's like yeah. what we said we say about the goose, the golden goose that laid the golden eggs. That's right. You know? Like you can't squeeze the goose. <laughs> you gotta not squeeze the goose. You gotta just let the goose do its thing. They're squeezing the goose like a lot of goose squeezers out men. there. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I get to tend the geese, the golden geese, and I'm not going to squeeze them too hard. I promise. I promise you can I leave me alone with those keys. Yeah, um, and then yeah. I guess I guess what musicians got to do is what happened to him too. Just take him out there and just unceremoniously tell him about the geese. Yeah, you know that's it. That's it. We figured it out. We got a the managerial class is Lenny, and we of gotta musicians manage- and managers. <laughs> yeah, we got of musicians and managers. We got to treat the managerial class like Lenny. We got to treat the guys that run the venues who are asking for 45% of your t-shirt sales for nothing in return, like Lenny, you know, we, you know, we love him. We had some good times together, but uh, it's time to say goodbye, you know? And it is like, I wouldn't be too optimistic, but my feeling is the smartest thing that can be done. And actually Nika's like the best person to talk to about this. So I'm sad she wasn't here of... I think she's like naturally kind of figured this out of like, you got to have a Patreon that gives you a certain percentage of your income. You do have to be on shit like Spotify, even though you're getting a small percentage from it. But if you're not there, people will be like, they won't accept that you exist. You know, it's so annoying. You have to to be on there. You have to do all of this. And um, she's doing a thing like next week where she filmed in Turkey, like four songs where she's just like playing in like this, like ancient, like, I don't know, like a, it's not a cathedral. I don't know what it is, but it's like, it's super cool to me to just release like these live videos from like insane places and like just kind of do, you have to do all of the things all the time, unfortunately, but if you can cobble together enough from each source, then you don't need anyone to help you do that. You really don't. Um, And I think that's, she's also doing a couple shows in like Germany, um, selectively doing a small amount of shows instead of the larger amount of shows she was considering. Like, I think that basically that's all you can do now, right? Is have like yeah. five revenue streams that no one is getting a cut of. And that yeah. is how you cobble it together, which is not ideal, but it works. And that's the reality. I think. Yeah. And you got to work super hard. And some people maybe aren't going to be into that. I mean, for me, you know, I have Patreon. I have at any given time, two to three bands active that I am either touring with, recording with, or releasing music with. 
and it's a it's a living. It's it yeah. works. You know, I think that's it. It's like a Flintstones animal. It's a living. It it is. I am the Flintstones animal. Yeah, that's what it is. Though. I'm like that's why I re- uh, respect you and Nika and everything. It's like that's how you make it work. Like you just gotta accept what it is and just keep working. You know, I don't know. Yo, if you were in the Flintstones, yeah. which utility animal would you be? Oh, that's a good question. Like a BuzzFeed quiz. I, don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I would be the bird yeah. that opens the cans. The can opening bird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would be a guy that uh, just runs really fast. One of the four or five guys that runs really fast, making the Flintstones car go. You know. Yeah. Because they don't they don't have tires. It's just like yeah. I would just I'd be like Flintstones cab driver. I would be the fastest NASCAR driver in the world in that universe because I would be the first guy to figure out shoes. Oh damn, dude. <laughs> Rollerblades. Oh my God. Yeah. If you had rollerblades on. Rollerblades, but they're square wheels. Just stone square wheels. Oh, damn. <laughs> it's just making it harder to walk. Man, cavemen sure were stupid. Idiots. Their cars suck. Idiots. Yeah. I mean, that's why you never hear about like any of the great works of literature written by cavemen. Because they're dummies. Yeah, they had picture books. We should transcribe the uh, like pictograms on the wall into novel form. Yeah, the complete works of cavemen. A twenty four is adapting a bunch of uh, caveman works. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> They're about trauma. It's all about trauma. The day the tiger and the deer met each other. Yes. The day there was a buffalo with weird proportions. <laughs> I don't know. Is there a finishing thought? Uh, it's like my finishing thought is that things are real bad right now for people in the middle of the music industry, but. It might sound trite, but people have always figured out a way to keep doing this insane job. And Charles, like what you just explained, like what Nika is doing or what Arlen was describing with the DIY world, you know, those are exit strategies. The important thing I think to remember is we got to Lenny the management. Yeah. (laughs) Remember to Lenny the management. If you have a Lenny, you got to do... You gotta, you gotta do the the hard thing. The dogs are barking in the distance. You can hear the men That's on right. horses coming up. It's gonna end That's one right, way man. or the other. Yeah, just do the do the kind and sweet thing. Let them go. <laughs> <laughs>